You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Everyone loves the idea of finding and unveiling something of immense historic importance. Tutankhamun's tomb, Machu Picchu, Shackleton's endurance, and of course secret messages on the back of the Declaration of Independence that leads Nicolas Cage to the treasure of the Knights Templar. Well, maybe we don't have something that dramatic, but it is still extraordinary. It is a sort of historical treasure hunt, a decades-long unveiling of one of the most remarkable stories regarding travel and exploration in the history of the world. Our story begins in the early 1800s when German explorer and traveler Ulrich Jasper Setzen came into possession of a collection of manuscripts in the Middle East. In that trove was a 94-page volume titled A Masterpiece to Those Who Contemplate the Wonders of Cities and the Marvels of Traveling. In more simple terms, it was called the Rihala, which translates into the travels. This tome told the story of a man from what is modern-day Morocco who traveled for 30 years throughout the Islamic world in the 14th century. The story was transcribed by a scholar named Ibn Juzay, but the man who tells this epic tale is Ibn Battuta. Excerpts from the Rihala were published in 1818 and 1819. Next, the Arabic text was translated into English and published in 1829. Then, in the 1830s, the French occupied Algeria, and scholars got their hands on five manuscripts of Ibn Battuta's travels. Two of these were complete. Also, one of the manuscripts that they got was dated 1356 and signed by Ibn Juzay, making it about as original of a source as you could get. Anyhow, over the next decades, the story of Ibn Battuta was slowly translated and revealed to the world. In 1929, selected portions of their hala were translated and published in English for the first time. A fully translated and annotated version of the entire hala was thus begun, the first of four volumes released in 1958. The final volume wasn't completed until 1994. And what was revealed was amazing. Ibn Battuta, according to his works, is one of the greatest travelers and explorers in recorded history. In the 14th century, he traveled throughout North, East, and West Africa, Mediterranean Europe, the Middle East, and Asia, going as far east as China. We are talking about traveling 73,000 miles, or 117,000 kilometers, over the course of 30 years. That is extraordinary. Today on the Explorers Podcast, we are going to begin a series on Ibn Battuta. For this episode, we will start by putting Ibn Battuta's travels into context with the world around him. After that, we will cover his early life and his upbringing, and then follow him on his first great adventure, a trek from Morocco to Mecca as he conducts his first Hajj, which is a pilgrimage all Muslims are required to undertake in their lifetime. But before we do all of that, a couple of notes. 
First, as always, there are maps of Ibn Battuta's travels on our website, explorerspodcast.com. It's not a bad idea to check these out to understand where we are going on our journey. Second, I want to point out that Ibn Battuta's full name is Abu Abdullah Muhammad Ibn Battuta. He is known as Ibn Battuta, but I want to stress that Ibn isn't a first name. The full last name is Ibn Battuta, which is how I will refer to the man throughout the series. Ibn Battuta, by the way, literally means son of the duckling. So let us start with a little background about the world of Ibn Battuta and understand the scope and limitations of what he did and didn't do. First item I'll mention is something I've already noted, and that is that Ibn Battuta's travels were really unknown to much of the world until the 1800s. That means nearly 500 years passed before the man's adventures were shared with the world. It is because of this, along with his religion, that Ibn Battuta isn't a household name like Marco Polo. His story was simply not known by many people. I also talked about Ibn Battuta's religion. He was a Muslim. That meant that even upon the discovery of his writings, there was some reluctance to acknowledge the man's accomplishments, at least from those in the Western world. A Muslim from Africa just wasn't the kind of person some history classes talked a lot about. This means that Ibn Battuta's journeys are only now really gaining recognition to the rest of the world. The second thing I want to mention is regards to the actual journeys of Ibn Battuta. If we look at his book, you can track him going 73,000 miles, nearly three times around the globe. That's extraordinary. And you know what? It's almost assuredly an exaggeration. Let me explain. Ibn Battuta recounted his travels after they were concluded. Some of what he talked about had happened decades earlier. He did not have a diary or journal to jog his memory, just what he could recall at the time. And Ibn Battuta did not write out his story. He dictated his narrative to Ibn Juzay, who I mentioned earlier. That means there are likely some errors in the text, especially regarding the exact dates and things like that. And it would have been easy for Ibn Juzay to tweak things to his own liking. A few other points about this topic. Point one, it was not uncommon for a person to incorporate stories they heard while out traveling into their own narrative. So if you are in Mecca and a guy tells you about the amazing city of Baghdad, it's fair game to include that guy's experiences in your tale, as if you had been there. As I said, this sort of thing was not uncommon. Marco Polo is another famous explorer who did this in his writings. The second point is that it was not unknown for transcribers to simply lift other travel logs from one writer to the other. Scholars have found near verbatim sections in Ibn Battuta's writings that come from other earlier travelers. Again, it was just something that was done at this time. For all we know, it was Ibn Juzay who included some of these other writers' works. We just don't know. In the end, there will always be some doubts about the authenticity of Ibn Battuta's deeds. But let's be clear, just like someone such as Marco Polo, few people doubt the scope and accomplishments of Ibn Battuta. Just know that some of his adventures may not have been his direct experiences. So, to continue with notes, as we read Ibn Battuta's writings, we should be aware that it was written by a learned Muslim man for other learned Muslim men. Ibn Battuta was a Sunni Muslim, and he followed a practice called Sufism, which is often called Islamic mysticism. Sufi Muslims have a slightly different method of practice than other non-Sufi Muslim followers. There's a deep emphasis on materialism and an elevation of qualities that allow for and facilitate an individual's unique path to find their relationship with God. It is considered to be a very tolerant practice of Islam. Because of this, Ibn Battuta spends a lot of time visiting and talking about his encounters and the accomplishments of Sufi mystics. And when I say a lot, I mean a lot. I will talk about some of these things during our series, but I won't spend a lot of time diving into his discussions about these people and their stories. My final note is about the range of Ibn Battuta's travels. At the time of the man's birth in 1304, 
Islam was the predominant religion in northern Africa, much of East Africa, all the Middle East, and into Asia, including parts of India. With that in mind, understand that Ibn Battuta's travels will rarely venture outside what I'll call the Islamic world. He will have lots and lots of dangers on his journeys, but he will almost always be able to fall back on his religion, Islam, to link him to those he encounters. It is a huge advantage for Ibn Battuta. He can have a different skin color from others, speak a different language, have different cultural norms, but he will always have, wherever he goes, a set of religious beliefs, customs, and practices that he shares with those he visits. It's a safety net, something our explorers don't always have. I've mentioned Marco Polo several times, and Ibn Battuta is often called the Islamic Marco Polo, and his champions point out that he traveled three times the distance of Marco Polo, which is true. The distance of Ibn Battuta's travels is staggering. But one big difference between the two men is that Ibn Battuta, unlike Marco Polo, will rarely go outside of what he would have thought of as the civilized world. When Marco Polo went east, he was putting everything new and everything he could rely on behind him. This is not to downplay the accomplishments of Ibn Battuta. I just want to stress how important this religious safety net is for the man. Okay, I think we've done a lot of pre-adventure talk and notes. Let's get going with the amazing life and adventures of Ibn Battuta. Abu Abdullah Muhammad Ibn Battuta, or if we really want to get fancy, Shams al-Din Abdu Abdullah Muhammad Ibn Abdullah Ibn Muhammad Ibn Ibrahim Ibn Muhammad Ibn Yusuf Lawada Al-Taji Ibn Battuta was born on February 24, 1304 in Tangier, which is located along the Strait of Gibraltar, less than 20 miles from Spain. This area was ruled by the Maronite Sultanate, a Berber Muslim empire that controlled much of what is modern-day Morocco. Tangier, by the way, was founded, according to legend, by Hercules, or Hercules' son. I have read both versions. That has nothing to do with our story, but I thought it was cool. So there you go. Anyhow, Ibn Battuti was a Berber Maghrebi. The Maghrebi were the predominant people of northwest Africa. They were of Berber and Arab descent. In Europe, many of these people were referred to as Moors. Ibn Battuta was part of the Berber tribe known as the Lawada. By the way, everything we know about Ibn Battuta comes from the autobiographical information he provides in his book. Ibn Battuta came from a family of Islamic legal scholars and judges, the later known as Qadis. When I talk about Islamic legal scholars, this means experts in Islamic laws and doctrine, commonly known as Sharia law. Sharia law, or sacred law, was the foundation of social order at this time. And the religious legal scholars, the Qadis, were leaned upon by Islamic communities to interpret and apply the law. This plays out in every facet of a community, meaning these legal scholars held a prominent place in society. As a youth, Ibn Battuta would have studied at a Sunni Maliki school, which was the dominant form of education in North Africa at this time. In Islam, there are four major schools or theory of law. The Maliki school of jurisprudence relies heavily on the Quran and Hadiths as primary sources. Ibn Battuta would go on to become a religious judge or Qadi like others in his family. This will be very important to him. It will give him a level of respect and honor as well as protection wherever he went in the Islamic world. Our explorer, despite being of Berber heritage, likely spoke Arabic as it was considered the language of the cultured and urbane population of the era. Not much is known about Ibn Battuta's youth, but he grew up into what someone in Western society might call a gentleman. He was courteous, refined, and understood how to operate within a complex social world. In his writings, he comes across as intelligent and gracious, but scholars also note that he was pious and self-righteous, as well as ambitious at times. He also knows how to ingratiate himself with men of wealth and power. And that sets the stage for the first great adventure of Ibn Battuta, a hajj or pilgrimage to Mecca in modern-day Saudi Arabia. 
the journey was expected to take a year and a half. He would not return home for 24 years. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Ibn Battuta set out on his first Hajj in 1325 at the age of 21. This was no simple thing. The journey to Mecca was, roughly, 3,700 miles or 6,000 kilometers. Every Muslim was required to go on a Hajj at some point in their life, assuming they were physically and financially able to perform the journey. For Ibn Battuta, his Hajj was a momentous and exciting event. He was going out into the world for the first time, seeing and experiencing things he had never imagined. Of it, he would write, quote, I sat out alone, having neither fellow traveler in whose companionship I might find cheer, nor caravan whose part I might join, but swayed by an overmastering impulse within me and a desire long cherished in my bosom to visit these illustrious sanctuaries. End quote. Now, for his journey to Mecca, Ibn Battuta had two options. He could travel along the coast of North Africa by boat and then go overland to Mecca. Or he could travel by land, following the caravan trails running along the coast. Either way was dangerous. A sea voyage meant pirates and storms. If you went overland, there were marauders, bandits, and even wars. Ibn Battuta elected to go by land. While he would start the trip alone, he would join a caravan heading east. The pilgrims understood that there was safety in numbers, and thus they gathered and went east together, picking up more and more people along the way. These caravans were filled with people from all walks of life, from the very poor to the very rich. Some people actually plied their trade along the route, using their skills to get food and shelter and transportation. A pilgrim's hodge could take years to complete, as a person went from city to city, stopping for weeks or months at a time to earn money, and then moving on. Ibn Battuta departed Tangier on June 14, 1325, and headed south to Fez, about 150 miles away, or 240 kilometers. There he joined a caravan, a solitary young man officially beginning his holy journey. As the caravan went east, it picked up traders, merchants, pilgrims, and travelers along the route. It's not hard to imagine Ibn Battuta taking on the look of a legal scholar, a turban in a long, wide-sleeved gown of fine material, all impeccably clean and he probably had a beard, as it was the style of educated men of the day. Ibn Battuta's caravan traveled for a few weeks through the mountains of Morocco, and after about 200 miles, or 325 kilometers, reached Flemson. Here, Ibn Battuta would join the company of a pair of envoys heading to Tunis. This would provide him with an extra degree of safety, which was important, as the roads were plagued by rogue tribesmen and bandits. 
From Flemson, it was on to Algiers, the first site of the Mediterranean for Ibn Battuta since leaving Tangier. Algiers was at this time a small and not particularly important town. Ibn Battuta and his companions would continue east through the Kabali Mountains. Along the way, he would be weakened by fever. But Ibn Battuta insisted he continue with the rest of the company, saying, quote, If God decrees my death, then my death shall be on the road, with my face set toward the lands of Hejaz. End quote. Hejaz, by the way, is the area around Mecca. Now, did Ibn Battuta really say all this at the time? Well, we don't know. But it sounds great, and to be honest, I don't want to nitpick this kind of stuff. In the end, he got back on his donkey and kept going. That's what mattered. If he actually made such a bold declaration and threw caution to the wind, who knows. But it sounds pretty good, so I'm happy to share it. Ibn Battuta's company moved light and fast. This was primarily due to the dangers presented by the rival tribes and factions that dotted the route. This was a volatile area, and not just simple tribal squabbles, but all-out war as rebels sought to overthrow the local sultan, Abu Bakr. The men continued east, Algiers to Bajaya to Constantine. The latter was the largest city in the interior of East Maghreb. And here I want to talk about something that is important to our story. At the edge of the city, Ibn Battuta was greeted personally by the governor, who was the son of the region's sultan. The man gave Ibn Battuta two gold dinars, which are coins, and a fine woolen cloak. The latter would replace Ibn Battuta's own mantle, which was worn and tattered from his travels. Anyhow, this is important for a couple of reasons. First, it demonstrates that Ibn Battuta was a person of importance. While he was still a young man, it shows he was to be respected, and the local governor showed him proper deference by greeting him as such. The second thing is regarding the gifts given to Ibn Battuta. This wasn't just because he was an important dignitary, which I'm sure didn't hurt, but because of Islamic tradition and law. Just a little information to share. There are five sacred pillars of Islam. Profession of faith, which means acknowledging that there is no other God but God, and that Muhammad is the messenger of God. This basically means that an individual does not believe in any other divine spirit or influence. Second is daily prayer. Third is alms, meaning charity to those who need it. This includes the poor, orphans, slaves, fighters in a holy war, and travelers. Ibn Battuta fell into this category. Fourth was fasting during the month of Ramadan. And finally, there was the Hajj, which we have discussed already. And it is because of these gifts of charity that Ibn Battuta will make his way throughout the Islamic world. This sort of thing allowed religious figures and dignitaries to travel without fear of being stranded alone and without means. We will see this throughout Ibn Battuta's travels. He will arrive in a city and find people who take him in, feed him, and even provide for the next stage in his journey. Anyhow, from Constantine, it was next on to Tunis. Again, the company moved quickly to avoid being set upon by bandits. At this stage of the journey, Ibn Battuta was plagued by fever, and instead of stopping and letting him rest, he was often tied to a saddle to prevent him from falling off his mount. Thankfully, the expedition arrived safely in Tunis on September 10, 1325. In Tunis, Ibn Battuta would have found the crown jewel of northwestern African cities. Tunis had a population of around 100,000 people and was the provisional capital of eastern Maghreb. There were splendid palaces and mosques and colleges. It was wealthy from trade, the city dealing in wool, leather, hides, cloth, wax, olive oil, and grain. From sub-Saharan Africa, there would have been slaves, ivory, and gold. The city had only recently been retaken from rebels by the sultan, Abu Bakr. Interestingly, Ibn Battuta had a rather unique reaction upon arriving at one of the Mediterranean's great ports. He recounts being sad. He said he showed up in Tunis, the destination of his company, and everyone was greeted by friends and relatives, but no one was waiting for him, and he started to cry. I love this moment. 
And it shows how vulnerable he was at this time. A 21-year-old young man, no friends or family to share a homecoming with. It is a very human moment. By the way, Ibn Battuta said one of the pilgrims in the group saw his reaction and took him in. He would eventually find lodging at one of the colleges in the city. Tunis, by the way, had three colleges. A college is called a madrasa, and here Ibn Battuta would have been exposed to prominent Maliki scholars and officials. Ibn Battuta spent two months in Tunis before departing with the caravan heading east. But in a new development, he was named the caravan's qadi, or judge. This was a pretty important gig. A caravan could have hundreds or thousands of people with it. It was like a great moving community. To make things work properly, a caravan needed discipline and to keep law and order among the disparate travelers. A qadi was thus responsible for settling disputes, answering questions, and just helping people out as needed. This demonstrates Ibn Battuta's rising status. He would have been one of the most sought-after and flattered men in the caravan. The next major stop would be Tripoli. However, along the way, Ibn Battuta entered into a contract to be married to the daughter of a Tunisian official who was with the caravan. However, the marriage fell apart once they reached Tripoli due to a dispute with the prospective father-in-law. Ah, but don't worry. Ibn Battuta will wed someone else instead, the daughter of another pilgrim, a scholar from Fez. The caravan would stop for an entire day to celebrate the union. If you are wondering what was up, well, don't sweat it. Ibn Battuta's personal life is, honestly, barely talked about. The man will get married several times over the course of his travels, and there will be concubines and slaves as well. Having multiple wives and slaves was legally and culturally acceptable. Ibn Battuta treats these relationships with barely a mention in his book. A man's relationships were his own business after all. Thus, a wife is lucky to be mentioned once or twice, and not even by name. Now, the area around Tripoli marks an important boundary. This is where the mountains and valleys of North Africa end, and the classic deserts of Libya begin. It is also the cultural end of Maghreb. Going forward, Ibn Battuta will be an outsider. A Maghrebi such as himself would have been viewed as coming from a frontier province. So, at this point, it was a long plot across the desert to the Nile Delta. Ibn Battuta would arrive in Alexandria in late 1325 or early 1326. The dates are a bit confusing. He had traveled roughly 2,000 miles over the past 8-9 months. He was, no doubt, a wiser and more experienced young man. The plan next was to go with a Hajj caravan across the Sinai Peninsula and then on to Mecca. However, this was not the time of year for the caravans to Arabia, so Ibn Battuta had some time on his hands, which was not a bad thing for a smart and curious young man. He would thus wander around Egypt, enjoying the historical and religious sites. He was impressed by Alexandria, noting its two harbors, one for Christians, the other for Muslims. He went to see the legendary lighthouse of Alexandria, which he reported to be falling apart. Also, the arrival in Egypt begins Ibn Battuta's love for talking about important religious and political figures. He will do this over and over when he spends time in any city. He really loves to mention religious people, especially Sufi mystics and the like, plus stories involving miracles and great deeds. Otherwise, with time on his hands, Ibn Battuta would travel extensively. The Great Pyramids got a cursory mention, and even then, he refers to them as a single structure, not several. And the Sphinx is not mentioned at all. This leads some people to speculate that Ibn Battuta never actually went to the pyramids. In Cairo, Ibn Battuta would have found the intellectual capital of the Arabic-speaking world. It would have been extraordinary. It was the largest city west of China, with a bustling population of perhaps half a million. Ibn Battuta noted that there were 12,000 people employed simply to haul water around the city, and 30,000-plus ships sailed up and down the Nile, many of them bringing spices from the east. In Cairo, he would spend weeks in the city, visiting the colleges, libraries, and mosques. 
He also took time to visit Sufi holy men. He said one mystic predicted his future, telling him he would visit India and China. This was probably added to the story to give the aura of destiny to Ibn Battuta's life and travels. Another thing about Cairo and all of Egypt was the mix of peoples. Ibn Battuta saw Christians and Jews. He saw black Africans, Turks, Persians, Asians, and a thousand more peoples, religions, and cultures. When Ibn Battuta visits a city such as Cairo, he gives incredible amounts of detail. His descriptions are part travelogue, part history, part gossip, that sort of thing. The sheer number of names can make for some tedious reading. Now, I want to share a couple of notes. First, much of Egypt and Syria was now under the rule of the Mamluks, who were of Turkish in origin. This made for an odd, but at times, successful union. The Mamluks had repelled the Mongols just a few decades earlier. In fact, many refugees had come to Syria and Egypt in this time to escape the Mongols, bringing with them some of Islam's brightest minds. The Mamluks would keep themselves apart from the Egyptians. They got to rule, the locals got stability. Second note, in spite of all these new experiences in the world, Ibn Battuta will remain an Orthodox Muslim. He tells one story of going to a bathhouse and finding some of the men not wearing proper clothing for such a setting. He promptly reported the offense to the local governor, who instituted a crackdown. Anyhow, come May of 1326, Ibn Battuta was ready to continue his Hajj. However, instead of crossing the Sinai Peninsula on foot under the protection of Mamluk soldiers, he elected to go down to the Red Sea and catch a ship to Jeddah on the western coast of Saudi Arabia, just 40 miles from Mecca. But as they neared, it was found that the local people, the Beja clan, had revolted against their Mamluk rulers. No one could use the road to Mecca anytime soon. Thus, Ibn Battuta had to retrace his steps to Cairo. It was too late for Ibn Battuta to cross the Sinai, but what about Damascus in Syria? There, a great caravan always gathered in late summer and traveled to Mecca. And so off to Damascus it was for Ibn Battuta. The road to the famed city was a well-traveled one and relatively safe. Along the way, Ibn Battuta got to visit Jerusalem, and he was surprised to find Christian pilgrims visiting the Holy Land. Reading Ibn Battuta's visits to the holy sites in and around Jerusalem, you do understand a bit more of why this land is so sacred to three different religions, and how they are intertwined in many ways. Ibn Battuta's route to Damascus is not exactly known, but he arrived in the city on August 9, 1326. He would spend 23 days in the city, waiting for the caravan to head south. While he was there, he stayed at a Maliki Madrasa and spent much of his time learning from a variety of theologians and scholars. Damascus, like Cairo, was teeming with such intellectuals and artisans, many of whom had fled the Mongols decades earlier. It was a perfect place for Ibn Battuta to expand his knowledge and horizons. He also mentions that he was laid up by fever for a time. But all of that would not stop him from getting married again, this time to the daughter of a Moroccan man residing in Damascus. The caravan to Damascus was a huge affair. We don't know how big it was for Ibn Battuta, as it varied from year to year, but one source from the 14th century said they were part of a caravan that included up to 20,000 people, so these things could be massive. Every person was expected to have funds and provisions for their trip to Mecca, and it wasn't cheap. It's not like you could carry months of food with you, so you needed money, and the prices on the road were high. Ibn Battuta would again rely on the charity of others to help him continue his hajj. A man he was staying with in Damascus, a Maliki jurist, hired him some camels and gave him money for the journey. The caravan from Damascus to Mecca was important for the Mamluk regime, who would protect it. They were trying to solidify their rule on Medina and Mecca, and thus they wanted the Hajj to go smoothly. They wanted to be seen as the best source of law and order to the people, and thus accepted as rulers, despite their outsider status. 
The Hajj caravan departed on September 1st, 1326. Before leaving, it's likely that Ibn Battuta divorced the woman he had just married, as it does not appear she traveled with him. The journey to Medina, the first stop on the trip, was 820 miles and was expected to take 40 to 50 days. And this was not easy. Physically, it was tough. There were mountains to pass through, sandy deserts, caked hard earth, black lava fields, and all with searing heat and little water. There were hostile nomadic tribesmen, titanic sandstorms, and even the occasional flash flood. This meant that injury and death were a common thing. Another great threat to these caravans was disease. You had thousands of people converging from all over the world at this one spot, and who knows what they brought with them. Plague, smallpox, influenza. It could easily take hold of a group of people who are packed together, sharing food and water and tents. For his journey to Medina and Mecca, Ibn Battuta does not report any great calamities or incidents. He befriended several people on his trip, including a Sufi from Grenada, as well as a man from Medina. The latter would host Ibn Battuta for four days while in his home city. For Ibn Battuta, the arrival in Medina would have been a momentous event. Medina was the second most sacred city in Islam. It is the burial place of the Prophet, and Ibn Battuta went to his tomb. By the way, a visit to Medina is not an obligatory part of the Hajj, but it is only 200 miles north of Mecca, or 320 kilometers, so most pilgrims take the time to visit the cradle of Islamic culture and civilization. Anyhow, while in Medina, Ibn Battuta would do all the things most pilgrims did, such as visit the many sacred sites and mosques, including the famed Green Dome Prophet's Mosque, Muhammad's Tomb. But Mecca would soon beckon, and after six days, Ibn Battuta was on the move again. Two notes about Ibn Battuta's Hajj. First, I want to point out that the Hajj is an event. You don't just visit Mecca at any time of the year and say you completed your Hajj. The Hajj takes place over a five to six day period in the twelfth month of the Islamic calendar, which can be anywhere from July to November on the Gregorian calendar. Second, as Ibn Battuta neared Mecca, he would go through various rituals and ceremonies in order to prepare for and complete his Hajj. Example, just before reaching Mecca, or as one arrived, there was the Iram. This is where a pilgrim really began their Hajj. Ibn Battuta, like all men, was required to wear two white seamless cloths, one wrapped around the waist reaching below the knee, and the other draped over his left shoulder and tied to the right side. He was not allowed to cut his nails or have any hair shaved. No one was allowed to have sexual relations, get married, or carry weapons. Because of the no-shaving rule, men often shaved their heads just before Iram. Ibn Battuta reached Mecca in October of 1326, riding into the city on a camel. He was 22 years old. He wrote this of the experience, quote, We entered the illustrious holy house, wherein he who enters is secure, by the gate of the Banu Shaiba, and before the illustrious Kaaba, God increased its veneration. Like a bride who is displayed upon the bridal chair of majesty, and walks with proud steps in the mantles of beauty, surrounded by the companies which had come to pay homage to the God of mercy and be conducted to the garden of eternal bliss. End quote. It would have been an incredible moment for Ibn Battuta and his fellow pilgrims to have finally reached their destination. Many had been on the trek for years. Others would never get the chance to make the journey or died en route. Over the next few days, Ibn Battuta followed the steps required to complete his Hajj. In his writings, he describes these ceremonies and places and events. There was the great mosque and the Kaaba, the latter the huge square black covered stone building at the center of the mosque. There was the stoning of the devil, a journey to Mount Arafat, and the sacrificing of animals. Ibn Battuta describes it all. In addition, he talks about the great markets and bazaars, the other holy sites in the city, plus the many revered figures who resided in Mecca or who he encountered. 
Something Ibn Battuta says no matter where he goes in Mecca was the crush of people. Today, more than 2 million people go to Mecca each year for the Hajj. We don't know the exact number that would have gone in Ibn Battuta's time, but it was likely hundreds of thousands, making Mecca, for a few days, one of the biggest cities in the world. By the way, one thing I love about Ibn Battuta's writings is that he likes to report miracles that he heard about from other people. One that he reports here is that the pigeons never landed on the Kaaba or fly over it. Thus, it doesn't have any bird poop all over it. Anyhow, when it was all over, Ibn Battuta could claim the title of Al-Hajji, an honorific granted only to those who had completed their Hajj. It would have been an impressive thing for such a young man. And so Ibn Battuta was done with his Hajj. He had done what he'd set out to do. So now, what were his next steps? Well, logically, he would have headed home, back to his family, who likely expected him to do that exact thing. But you know what? Ibn Battuta had other things on his mind. He had discovered that he liked traveling, and while he was out in the world, why not do some more? But that will be for next time. It is here in Mecca that we will wrap up our first episode in a story of Ibn Battuta, one of the great travelers and explorers of the age. Next time, the mysterious world in the East will call to him, and he will go. So that is it for today. I hope you've enjoyed today's story. Thank you for listening. Please take care. I will see you next time. The Explorers Podcast is part of the Airwave Media Network. Please go to airwavemedia.com to find other great shows, such as Clever, The Conspirators, and Bro History. Have you ever gazed in wonder at the Great Pyramid? Have you marveled at the golden face of Tutankhamun? Or admired the delicate features of Queen Nefertiti? If you have, you'll probably like the History of Egypt podcast. Every week, we explore tales of this ancient culture. The History of Egypt is available wherever you get your podcasting fix. Come, let me introduce you to the world of ancient Egypt. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.